the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let's take a moment to pray together. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we, we ask that this morning, as we begin the season of Lent together, that you would fill our hearts with openness, with honesty, Help us to look deep into ourselves to understand how desperately we need to connect to you. Help us to see the beauty of what your son has done on our behalf. And may that be something that impacts us and shapes us, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time. And we pray and beg this in the name of your son. Amen. You know, um, as I was preparing for the sermon uh, this morning, I had this thought, I should have read titled this thing, if I had another day or two, I could have done something like Jesus and the Gracious Messiah, or something to that effect, because what jumped out at me this week as I was thinking about this passage was really Judas, Judas, um, and how integral he is to the story of the Last Supper. Because if you've ever been betrayed, if you've ever experienced someone close to you turning on you, Someone you trusted that has failed to protect you allowed something absolutely tragic to happen to you. You kind of begin to understand the dynamics around this story. Or if you've been someone who's betrayed a friend, 
a family member, a spouse, you know, whose trust, which is foundational to your relationship, you have broken and shattered and you live with shame and guilt, you begin to understand some of the dynamics, again, that are part of this story that is before us today. Because betrayal is one of the most painful things I believe we experience. And I think all of us can relate to this here. And what this story begins to tell us and what this passage begins to speak to us about is that Jesus understands. Not only does he understand, you know, he has done something about it. And it is a way he is bringing about salvation into the world and exactly what it is we need. I mean, this infamous story, when you hear the word Judas, the name Judas, it is synonymous with betrayal. And this story in particular, I think, has, is really meant this morning for those of us who think we are allies of Christ, followers of Christ. It makes us look deep into our hearts and understand and see that we need Jesus probably more than we think. And Jesus actually has a way to move towards us. Because if you remember where the story left off last week was, we saw Jesus give a warning to his followers in Luke 21. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus gives this warning. Pray. Watch out. Worry. Don't worry so much about the cares of this life because it will come upon you like a trap. And Luke 22 begins with the Passover approaching. And the chief priests and the scribes, they are trying to figure out how to put Jesus to death. But they realize they need to do this in a way that causes the least amount of disruptions, hopefully when the crowds are not there, and they really need someone from the inside who is willing to betray him. And we read in verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. You know, and you read that, and the thing that may jump out at you is, what does it mean that Satan entered into Judas? Let's think about this for a second. Was he possessed like in a horror movie where no, he now has no control over his actions? I don't think that's what that means. But if you reflect on it, just as Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Judas is being tempted by Satan to think in a certain way, to look at the situation in a certain way, to begin experiencing something different. He begins to read the situation, and he begins to wonder and to doubt whether everything Jesus promised is actually going to happen. Things are turning. Jesus may be executed. This movement I'm a part of, maybe it is not going to make it. And he begins to think, why don't I take the sure thing? Switch sides. Take the 30 pieces of silver. Because if you're on the wrong side of this, you're going to be executed. So rather than trusting in the promises of Jesus, 
he begins to doubt everything Jesus has said, claimed that the kingdom of God is near, that Jesus will actually meet all of your needs. He's going to judge the living and the dead, that salvation is through him. And rather than following Jesus, he begins to wonder, I'm not sure if I can really believe everything he's promised. I'm not sure Jesus is going to come through for me. And here's the thing. These are questions that plague all of us at a certain level. No one is just fully 100% with Jesus and 100% here. We struggle and our hearts move in this place of sometimes ambivalence, sometimes passion for Jesus, sometimes wondering if I believe these things because things are hard. And as we journey to the crosses through this season of Lent, the gospel is asking us the same questions here that the disciples are being asked. Will you follow Jesus and remain faithful to him even when it's hard? Do you believe his claims and his promises, especially when it looks like it's going to be costly? Or when common sense says, why follow Christ when I can live for myself? Or maybe you should just live to follow Jesus as long as he meets your needs. See? And here's the remarkable thing about all of this. While that is happening, while all of this is happening in the background, we have the Last Supper. They're in the upper room. Jesus is sitting with his 12. And he is going through the Passover meal and he's telling them as he passes the bread around and the cup, he tells them, this is my body and this cup is... It is also my blood which is poured out for you. This is all in verse 19 as you read. This is the new covenant in my blood. And at that moment, we read in verse 21, Jesus says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on this table. He tells them about their failure and betrayal. Why? What's the point? And of course, he's pointing to Judas but there is something else taking place here. All of the disciples begin to wonder, wait a second, is Jesus talking about me? Who could it be? You know, why talk about this as he's talking about forgiveness, that he's come to die, that there is something specific he is here to do? You know, one commentator explains this in this way. He says, in placing the Last Supper in between the betrayal and defection of the disciples, the gospel vividly conveys that the sin that necessitates the death of Jesus is not someone else's sin, not someone out there, but his own disciples, Judas, Peter, John, you, and me. See, every time the Lord's Supper is celebrated, and his followers and friends come and participate in it, we cannot ignore the fact that we need forgiveness, that we sit at the table not because we have somehow earned the right to sit there, but because we are guilty, that we cannot save ourselves. We worship the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is doing and preparing and sharing in this meal while he is being betrayed all at the same time. And it's a remarkable thing. I mean, can you sit at a table with someone who has destroyed you in this way or is betraying you in this way? It is, 
it is unthinkable in some ways. Some of you have experienced this personally in so many ways, and you start to wonder, my goodness, the love that Jesus has for those who fail him, who betray him, who turn from him, I wish I had a little bit more of that. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You do. Because when you eat and drink with me, I am telling you something, that my love for you is so great. My desire for you to experience new life is so deep. I am willing to give my life for you, not because you are actually going to stay with me until the cross. This is him talking to the disciples. Not because you're actually going to obey me perfectly. Not because you're going to be useful to me somehow, but because I love you. He still eats with Judas and the disciples. And this is one of those things that you begin to reflect on and you wonder, man, if this was really at the heart of our lives, think about how this should change us. How do you actually deal with those who actually have betrayed us deeply, who have hurt us? We have such a hard time forgiving those who've hurt us and betrayed us. If you could learn to forgive those who have slighted you, overlooked you, abandoned you, perhaps even abused you. Think how different your life would be. How many of us suffer because these things that have been done to us still has power over us? And if you can't get over your anger, you don't know how to process it, we all end up living lives full of self-pity, resentment, and bitterness because it's really hard to forgive. And yet, what we see at the Lord's table and the Lord's Supper is Jesus saying, while this is happening to me, here's what I want you to know. My body is being broken for you. My blood will be spilled for you. I have not turned my back on you while you, Judas in particular, have done so already. You know, why is it so hard to forgive? Why is it so hard for us to forgive others? And I think one of the reasons why is because we always think, I would never do that. We always say, well, that's different. Maybe I did something similar, but you know, there's a whole reason and a scenario behind it. I'm justified, but I would never, dot, 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 you can fill in the blank, right? As Miroslav Volf, uh, the Croatian theologian, he wrote, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. We always think that Judas is out there. It's somebody else. While the scriptures are trying to help us to understand, you have to see yourself in this story as someone who would and could betray Jesus. See? Because when you believe you are not a sinner, see, it's really hard to understand how can I forgive someone else. But when you begin to understand, man, this is who I am. I failed. I failed gravely, deeply. The people who've hurt me, yes, they've sinned. But there is a lot there. How can I withhold what I've been given by Christ, especially when someone comes to me and says, I'm so sorry, would you forgive me? 
We are in the community of sinners together, and this has life-giving power because it is the gospel. You know, Hebrews 12 says this, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. What's it saying? That someone who begins to understand and experience the power of Jesus' willingness to sit and to eat with someone who is betraying him and to say, hey, come and receive forgiveness. There's still time. Turn. He's saying, hey, work with me on this. This is something that can also be a part of who we are. See? This is what's going on in this passage. You know, and I love what Jesus says here in verse 21 Instead of calling out Judas, did you know this? But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Why doesn't he just call him out by name? Of course he knows who who it is. But what's he doing? He's asking again all the disciples to look at their own heart. You know, Leonardo da Vinci captures this beautifully in the painting of The Last Supper. Because you, you start studying, and here's Jesus in the center, and you begin to look at all of the disciples in that moment, asking and trying to figure out, wait a second, wait, wait. Uh, yeah, that was me too. I've had those thoughts. I've been thinking about this. I, I, is he talking about me? They're all wondering, who is it, but could it be me? But Jesus hasn't gone out and pulled the Nathan the prophet thing where he tells King David, you... You're the one we're talking about here. But why does Jesus keep it so vague? And notice a couple of things here. He doesn't not bring this up. You know, he doesn't just pretend nothing's happening and we're going to be this nice family. We're going to have a wonderful meal together. We're all good. Maybe you, you have Thanksgiving meals and it feels like that because no one wants to talk about what's hard. And Jesus is saying, we're not doing that, okay? We're not pretending nothing is wrong. Uh, Some of us grew up in environments like that or have environments like that, and that's hard, right? But it definitely is telling Judas something. He's saying, I am warning you. Because in verse 22, he says, Woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. If you go through with it, Judas, this is going to destroy you. Please don't. Jesus is doing this in this gentle nudge of saying, Hey, reflect on this. He isn't unmasking Judas. He isn't humiliating him or shaming him either, but he warns. And I think this is the way God works in our lives oftentimes. He's trying to nudge us. He's trying to say, hey, consider this. Consider what you're doing. Consider your relationship to me. And why does Jesus take this approach? This is his act of courtesy and love Judas. He wants Judas to repent. He doesn't want to crush Judas, but he wants his heart to be melted. He doesn't want to condemn him, but he's trying to convict him. If he doesn't say anything, pretend nothing is wrong, there's no opportunity to say, hey, have you even thought about what you're doing, Judas? If he humiliates him, exposes him, he's probably going to bolt and go the other way as well. Jesus is trying to soften his heart. Because this is the way God works, and he often does this with us. You know, Isaiah 55, verse 7 says this, Return to the Lord who will have mercy 
to our God who will richly pardon. Jesus is gently trying to say, you know that passage out of Isaiah? God's mercy is here. He loves the pardon. Won't you come? There's still time for you, Judas. There is time for you, the rest of the disciples. And I am inviting you to come and sit and eat and dine with me. I want you to know I want you. This is the Lord who invites us to dine with him. He sees you for all that you are, all the ways you failed him. And he's saying, come, I want to heal you. I want to embrace you. I'm not trying to mask you, humiliate you. I'm not trying to shame you. But I want you to experience new life that is in me. That is the invitation to come to this table. And when people come together in order to eat the bread and drink of the cup, that's what we proclaim. That this meal is one in which people like Judas, that is people like you, people like me, people like the disciples who are going to all flee. They are the ones Jesus is saying, you need my love and my sacrifice and I am here to give it to you. Will you come along? Because this will utterly, utterly change your life. That's the invitation we have today. You know, let me close this with this story because I think if this comes into your life, it starts to shape us in profound ways, especially around forgiveness. You know, some of you have read probably uh, Laura, Laura Hillenbrand's book, Unbroken. It's the story of Louis Zamperini. And who was, he was a man who was part of the USA track and field team at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. He was a young man who grew up in Torrance during the Depression. And once he got on the boat from New York to go to Berlin, He's never seen so much food in his life. He stuffed himself, put on 10 pounds before he got to Berlin. He never meddled. You know, when Jesse Owens got his gold medal, he did not meddle. But the story of Zamperini is far more than his Olympic uh, appearance. He also served in the U.S. Air Force during World War II, and he was shot down in the Pacific and spent 40 days, uh, 47 days adrift in the sea before being rescued and captured by the Japanese and was a POW for two years. He was tortured within an inch of his life before he was finally rescued and returned home. So his story, it sounds like, is one of strength and survival and resilience. And the title of the book, you know, Unbroken, in many ways is an ironic title because his life actually was not about the fact that he was able to pull all of this off and have a great life. But the story continues with him getting married, dealing with all of his own brokenness. He turns into an alcoholic. His marriage is in shambles. And as he is struggling through all of this, he comes to meet God at a Billy Graham crusade, and God turns his life around. It's not until he is broken by God's love that his life actually changes. And one of the things that is remarkable about what happened to Zimperini is as he began to experience God's love for him and the forgiveness 
of the gospel, he began to think about all those who had wronged him, all those who had betrayed him, especially those Japanese soldiers who tortured him during World War II. And eventually, he got on a plane, flew to Japan to find the guards who had tortured him. And he wanted to go there to tell them, I forgive you. I want you to understand, I know a God who faced something that was far worse than I have ever faced, and he has forgiven me. I want you to know the good news. I want you to experience what it's like to have new life. You see? This is what begins to happen when you start understanding the way Jesus has come to us in this meal and he deals with us. Because at the meal, Jesus is saying to Judas and the disciples, I will be broken for you. My blood will be spilled for you, even though you're betraying me. And I'm giving you this bread and this wine. But in a little while, I'm actually going to be drinking vinegar from a sponge. You know, there's something beautiful about this. He's taking our condemnation on the cross. I mean, it's this incredible expression of love, his meekness and majesty of Jesus all together showing up here. And his love expressed to us. And when you begin to see this, and I pray that during the season of Lent, this would become new to you. As he is offering mercy to Jesus, as he's offering it to you and me, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, Jesus is saying, I can bring healing to your life because in me there is new life. And he says, come, eat with me, drink with me at this table. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, we ask that this morning as we reflect on the incredible love and mercy of our Lord Jesus, We ask that you would meet us in a profound way, that our lives would be altered because we have seen beauty and goodness and mercy. These are things we so desperately need to experience. We also want to be a community that shares this with others. We want our lives to be marked by this transformative power that is found in our connection to Jesus because we want the world to know that you, O oh Lord, has done something remarkable, that you care, and that you are making all things new. And we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.